And before I jump into this, I just want to say a quick word of thanks. Um, and aren't we blessed by the musicians the Lord has given us in our church and just the way they lead? I just want to thank specifically just during the whole pandemic time, we've had people that have come in, you know, and we've had the band up here almost every every Sunday since we've been outside. But Danny and Megan every week would come in and make sure we had something online. And that's, that's a big deal um, to have folks like that and to have Mark and David who would come in every week and make sure we had sound and make sure we had the video up. And so I just praise the Lord for these people and the way that the Lord has used them to serve us as his people. And it's appropriate for us to give honor uh, where honor is due. So it would be okay, and it won't even be picked up on the microphones possibly for you to clap for them. I think that they, the Lord would be honored by that today. So. I ask you to look at verse 17 of Exodus chapter 20 as we come to the end of this section of the Bible we call the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words from God. We've been looking at these commandments as individual commandments, confronting all of the behaviors of God's people. And remember, that's the point, right? It's not behaviors of the world. These are laws given to God's people. These Ten Commandments are individual in nature in the sense that we can look at it and say, okay, what can I learn about my heart and about my behavior when it comes to the Sixth Commandment, the First Commandment, the Second Commandment? But they're also a whole. They're meant to be taken as a whole. The Ten Commandments are one law, one word from God for us. They establish the ethic of God's kingdom. So they're the fence for God's people. They're the behavior of God's people. What does it look like to be the people of God? You can look at this law. The the whole of God's law displays the holiness of God himself. I hope as we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments, you've seen how this fits within the narrative of the book of Exodus, where God has revealed himself to Moses and then reveals himself to the people of Egypt and the people of Israel and brings them out of bondage and now is taking them to the promised land. He's displaying his holiness But it also, as a whole, exposes the inability of humanity to keep the law. Right? I can be really good at number three two days a week, but that does not mean I am holy as God is holy. Begin to understand this law as a whole. If I break one commandment, I break all the commandments. That I cannot within myself find the holiness or the righteousness to please God. So God gives us his law so that we will have a tutor that will lead us to Jesus, a a, a schoolmaster who will teach us of our inability so that when we meet Jesus, we'll see him as the way, the truth, and the life. And so each week we've been diving into Jesus being the fulfillment of the commandment. We come to the 10th commandment, and Exodus 20, verse 17 puts it this way. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. I love the use of the word neighbor here because we are told by Jesus that the whole law can be summed up in this way. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And when we come to the end of the Ten Commandments, he just throws neighbor right there for us to see. That we must love our neighbor and we cannot love our neighbor if we are coveting what our neighbor has. If we look at our neighbor's life our neighbor's wife, our neighbor's stuff, and we desire it, and we covet it, and we want it, and our desires lead us against our neighbor. It's impossible for us to love our neighbor. 
This tenth commandment kind of serves as a bookend at the back end of the commandments. The, the first of the commandments, that you should have no other gods before God himself, teaches us that if we were to break that commandment, we would break all of the commandments. If we have another God other than God, we're going to come up with another law and another word from God other than God's word and God's law. Everybody's with me on that? We have a different God. We have a different law. So we're going to break all of the commandments if we set up a different God. But the the same way, the 10th commandment, this do not covet, calls us to break all of the other commandments. We understand that if we covet, then we're going to take. We're going to take what's not ours. We're going to take... Who is not ours? And this coveting leads us down a road of not honoring God and not being able to love our neighbor. You can, in essence, put it this way. The first commandment establishes God's complete claim over his people. I am the Lord your God. You should have no other gods before me. The first commandment establishes God's claim over his people. The tenth commandment establishes God's complete claim over his people's desires. Can you put those two up on the screen for everybody real quick? The first commandment establishes God's complete claim over his people. The tenth commandment establishes God's complete claim over his people's desires. And it's interesting here because we've gone commandment after commandment and we've gone to the New Testament after we've read, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. And we've gone to the New Testament to see how Jesus then applies that to the heart, right? We've gone from behavior to the heart. The Tenth Commandment starts with the heart. The Tenth Commandment is the one commandment that deals with the heart. It doesn't deal with the behaviors that come out of the heart. Why? Because that's already been covered. When your desires for more take over, you will steal, you will murder, you will commit adultery. The Tenth Commandment is the first and only commandment to deal only with the heart. It doesn't need Jesus to extend it to the heart. It already puts us on the hook. So, if you are like me and you read God's law and your first tendency is to go, yeah, that person over there should stop doing that, right? And then you go, and I, you know, I've I've been guilty of it, but I'm not as bad as that person. If that's your tendency and you're trying to get yourself off the hook here, you can't get off the hook when it comes to the heart. Now, what happens is the more that we explore our heart's desires apart from Jesus, the more they demonstrate our heart's depravity. The fact that there's nothing good within us in and of ourselves. That our heart's desires apart from Jesus would always lead us away from God, not to God. What this really comes down to and what the Ten Commandments are confronting over and over and over again are our personal preferences. The desires of the depraved heart, the desires of the sinner's heart is really focused on our own personal preferences, right? The condition of the simple heart is that we would continually crave and be discontent. This is what it looks like to be outside of Christ is we're not satisfied. Why? Because Christ is the only one who can satisfy. So the heart that's 
far from God is going to be discontent and is going to constantly be craving. And we can see that here in the Ten Commandments. To break the Tenth Commandment would be to break all of the commandments. We prefer, right, if this is a preference issue, I desire to be my own God, to be in charge. And in doing so, I make up my own rules. I prefer, within my own sinful heart, to have the glory to myself. The glory that only belongs to the name of God. I would steal it for myself. With a depraved, sinful heart, I would prefer to have my time be used my way. And set apart a day for worship. That's the day for me to do whatever I want to. We prefer to have authority instead of submitting to authority. And then when we come to the Tenth Commandment, that desire leads us, we prefer to have more. More specifically of what our neighbor has. You cannot love your neighbor if you're constantly desiring what your neighbor has. You're only loving your neighbor's stuff. And so this Tenth Commandment really puts us all on the hook. If we're honest about our hearts, which, let's just admit it, that's not easy to do, right? It's not easy to be honest with ourselves, but let's stop today. Let's stop pretending that we're okay. And I just want you to understand this really quickly. God already knows you're not okay. You're not fooling anybody. Okay? Let's just stop pretending we're okay apart from Jesus. And let's come before him and and realize this, that he forbids us to covet more than we have. He forbids for us to have desires for what others have. And at the heart of that, it's because he's the one who gives us everything we need. So what is forbidden here in the Tenth Commandment? So we always kind of look at how do I make sure I'm not breaking the commandment, right? And then we try to say, now I want to make sure I'm keeping the commandment. We've been doing this every week. I hope you've caught on. Right? It's how do I make sure I'm not breaking the commandment, and then I want to make sure I'm keeping the commandment. The, how do I not break the commandment? The first thing you need to understand is this. Desires are not wrong. In and of themselves, desires are not wrong. Desires are part of humanity. Desires are something that God has. Desires themselves are not wrong. What the Tenth Commandment is forbidding is that we shouldn't desire the things we shouldn't desire. Okay? Another way of putting it is, do you trust God enough that what he's given you is enough? I shouldn't desire the things that I don't have. Because those desires will not fulfill me. But if we're... If we're dealing with the world around us, there's a real danger when it comes to coveting, and it's this. We find ourselves so embedded in a culture of coveting that oftentimes it's really difficult for us to realize that we have a problem with coveting. Okay, do, you're following me? It's the, the culture is all about coveting. You can't turn on the TV without coveting driving all of the advertising buy our product we'll give you a happier life take our drug we'll give you a happier life drink our drink we'll give you a happier life you'll have more money you'll have a yacht 
Just go buy our soda. That's how silly it is if you really think about it, but that's what they're telling us. They're telling us their product can bring happiness. And we're so embedded in that culture that it's really easy for us to miss the fact that we're struggling with covetousness. So let's identify what covetousness is. Let's identify what this coveting is so we, so we don't do it. According to Scripture, coveting is the desire for more. The desire for more. And that covetousness and the desire for more is the default mode for the world. Covetousness and the desire for more is the default for the world. First John chapter 2 puts it plainly. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, the things that I want, the desires that my eyes see, that make me feel good, that make me feel like I deserve it, all of those things are not from the Father, but those are from the world. And the world is passing away with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, this covetousness is something that all of humanity deals with. It is a heart condition because it's the default mode for the world. Think about it. Poor people covet what rich people have. Those without covet what those who have possess, right? That stands to reason. That's kind of the way coveting works. So why is it that rich people covet too? That when they have, they just want more. Because it's the default mode of a sinful heart. It's like the guy who filled up all his barns, right? Jesus talks about it. He fills up all of his barns and he goes, well, my barns are full. I guess I better go build new barns. What does Jesus call him? A fool? Because his very soul is at stake. We're told that it doesn't profit a man anything to gain the whole world. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Rich and poor alike will covet. The man with many barns will build more barns. The man with many cars will buy more cars. The newest, the best, the poor will desire what the rich have. Even the righteous will covet what the wicked have. How many times in your life and in my life have we looked at the, the world around us and gone, that's not fair. That's not fair. That person is wicked. That person is horrible. Person is pure evil and look at all that they have. That's not fair. Why would they get that and I don't get anything? I'm eating spam and they're eating caviar. And they're wicked. I like spam, by the way. See, it, it can even be a stumbling block for us, can't it? When we see what's unfair and what we would perceive to be unjust... The psalmist in Psalm 73 struggled with this. He says it this way. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He almost fell into this sin of coveting. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Even the righteous will struggle with coveting. It is a heart issue. 
and it's the default mode for this world. Coveting is the desire for more, and coveting is deceptive because it's often linked to good things. A better marriage, a better job, a better family life. Those things aren't bad. But the more we feel like we can be satisfied by more and better, the less we will find satisfaction in God himself. How did the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord your God. You should have no other gods before me. Can you honestly say that if you keep pursuing and desiring something lesser than God, that you're not actually making that your God? You see how breaking the Tenth Commandment, you will always break the first. But we find ourselves wanting a better this and a better that and a better this and a better that. It's deceptive because it's often linked to good things. We can read all kinds of books that tell us how to have a better life. But none of them can ever give you a better God. Covetousness is dangerous. Because it makes us believe that we can be satisfied with lesser things than God himself. But, but everybody's doing it. It's the culture. It's natural. You just told me. It's part of being human. So what's the big deal? If everybody's doing it and I don't do it as much as other people, then what's the big deal? What's the problem with coveting? It really comes down to three basic truths for us. Coveting reveals a heart that replaces Jesus with lesser things. And then coveting reveals a pride that believes that we deserve better than what God has given to us. And coveting also reveals a discontentment in our hearts. See, the issue isn't just that we covet. The issue is that we don't believe that Jesus is enough. Think about the Israelites there at the mountain as God is giving his law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You should have no other gods before me. Do not covet what your neighbor has. Don't covet his wife. Don't cover his servant. Don't cover his oxen, covet his oxen, his donkey. Don't covet anything that your neighbor has. Why? Because God's going to give equally to all people? No, he doesn't say that. They're going to be rich. They're going to be poor. What's he, what's he saying? Because I've given you myself. You're my people. I am your God. You are my people. I'm speaking to you from a mountain. Do you not believe that when you get into the land and you see the riches of Jericho, that I can't give you more because I am God alone? Do you not believe when you see the wickedness of the people of Canaan and all of their riches that I am God up here on the mountain, meeting with you, speaking to you, that I can provide for your every need. Do you not believe it? He's asking us the same question from his word today. Do you believe it? Do you believe that he can and will provide for your every need? If you don't believe that, you will be wanting more, which really is wanting less, because he's already given you everything. He's already given you the best. He's already given you himself. Coveting reveals a heart that replaces Jesus with lesser things and a discontentment that only Jesus can satisfy and a pride that seems to think we deserve more or better than we have. Let, let me just stop on that point for just a second. 
we don't deserve what we have right now, if we're being honest, right? Is it not by God's grace and mercy that you and I have anything? It's not a thing that you and I possess that we deserve. So what in the world would cause us to think that we deserve more? What kind of pride is that? Yet that's at the heart of coveting. So it would be really important for us, if we don't want to break this commandment, to know some clues in our life as to whether we're coveting or not. Because even though we live in Powhatan, I'm not typically walking out into my yard coveting my neighbor's ox. It's not happening, right? Not coveting his donkey. So I'm not sure how to apply that part to me. But it is important that if I'm going to break, end up breaking all of the laws of God, if I covet, I want to make sure I'm avoiding coveting. So how do I know if I'm coveting? How can I avoid this? The first one, I'm going to give it to you. And then I'm going to just kind of ratchet it up. So I'm just warning you right now. We're going to ratchet it up as we go. The first is this. Grumbling about what you have. Not even grumbling about what you don't have. Just grumbling about what God has already given to you would be a sign that you're coveting and that your heart thinks you deserve more. Just think about that for a second. When was the last time you coveted or grumbled about something that God has given you? Not grumbled about a hard situation. Grumbled about an actual gift that God has given you. Grumbled about a person that God has placed in your life that loves you. See, grumbling about what we have is a sign that we're coveting. And, and the flip side of that, this is still number one. Like I said, I'm going to be ratcheting it up a little bit, so just turn the screw a little bit. It's not just grumbling. It's not being generous with what God has already given you. You see, if I have a, a mindset and a heart that says, I deserve more, God has not been generous enough with me, will I ever be generous with others? So if you struggle with generosity or you struggle with grumbling, it's really just proof that your possessions possess you and not the other way around. And the need and the want for more and more and more will always possess you. How do I know if I'm coveting? An attitude of do whatever it takes to get ahead. What are you willing to sacrifice to get ahead, to get next, to get more, to get better? To sacrifice family, sacrifice whatever or whoever for success? Are you willing to step on someone to get ahead? Are you willing to just cut corners to get ahead? Are you willing to lose your honor and integrity to get ahead, to get the next, to get better, to get more? How do I know if I'm coveting? Well, at its base, this is where all of us get on the hook. It's a preoccupation with gaining more. It's a preoccupation with more and better. And when this preoccupation takes root in our hearts and in our lives, it will lead to active sin. It will come out of our hearts into our actions. When this desire for more and gaining more takes root, it will hurt the people around us. See, most people don't just wake up on a Tuesday and determine, I'm going to go hurt people today to get whatever I want. It's not usually how most people start their Tuesday mornings. 
No, there's a slippery slope that takes them to that place. And it starts with, why does he have that and not me? Well, that's not fair that he got that promotion and I didn't. Well, that's not fair that he's making more than I am. Well, that's not fair that the teacher was talking to her and not to me about that. That's not fair that he got asked or she got asked to be the captain. That's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair. And the more we think that's not fair, the more we are discontent, the more likely we are to act on those desires and hurt the people around us. It is desires that feed sinful action. James chapter 4 puts it this way. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Have you ever just asked that question? Why, why are we fighting? Why are we quarreling here? He tells us. Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. At his heart, coveting asks this question. Or says this statement, I will be happy if I have blank. Ultimately, I'll be happy if I just have this. What is it in your heart? Because this is a lie from Satan. The same lie he told Eve in the garden. She saw it. It looked good to eat. He said, you will not surely die. It's a lie that our hearts are predisposed to believe. The lie that only the truth of Christ can override. There's real danger in coveting. Even though we live in a world which makes it hard for us to even recognize it because we're not as bad as some people. There's a real danger to our souls, to our hearts, to our lives, and to the people we love. And so what's the cure? What's the cure? If I know I have a problem, and we all admit right now that we have a problem, that we're not okay when it comes to this, that we're not off the hook here, right? If we all go ahead and admit that, What's the cure? The first cure is this. Remember the teachings of Scripture. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Scripture reminds us that possessions do not bring ultimate fulfillment. In fact, what they bring is often the desire for more. So having will actually lead to the desire for more having. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 11, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. There is no real happiness in possessions. It's just the desire for more. What's the cure for coveting? Remembering the teaching of Scripture. Scripture reminds us that the prosperity of the wicked does not last forever. If you think it's not fair, just remember the end game. The evil and the wicked who are far from God... They're not keeping their stuff for eternity. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Can your heart say that today? My flesh and my heart may fail. My life might be taken away, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And remember this truth. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. For, but for me, for me, it is good to be near God. I made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Scripture reminds us that the prosperity of the wicked does not last forever, but those who belong to God will draw near to him. What's the cure for coveting? 
Remember the teachings of Scripture, but also hope in the Lord and not in this world. Say with the writer there in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you, God? You have God as your refuge, as your near Savior, as our strength, our portion. Do you honestly think that because you don't have certain earthly possessions or as many earthly possessions as other people might have, that you've been given less from God? Or if you have a lot and more than other people, do you really believe that God has given you more than other people who are believers in Christ? I want you to know possessions don't enter into the equation in the kingdom of heaven. You're not taking any of it with you. I'm not taking any of it with me. My treasures are in heaven, stored up there, where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Our, our treasures are laid up there so we can say, the Lord himself is my portion. Isn't he enough? It's really the question at the heart of coveting. Can we be content in the goodness of Jesus? Not just in the good gifts that Jesus gives. But therein lies the problem. Outside of Jesus Christ, in our sinful state, and even now as believers, if we're warring against sin and pride and lust and envy and covetousness in our lives, when God's perfect law, when God says, do not covet, do not murder, do not commit adultery, when his perfect law comes in contact with my sinful heart and my sinful desires, our sinful desires are often awakened, aren't they? I mean, think about this. If you're, if you're blissfully going through life thinking life is all about just attaining as much wealth as you possibly can, nobody's told you any different. And you, every time you turn on the TV, you're like, I want that. I'll work to get that. I want that now. I want what that guy has. I want what that guy has. That looks great. I'll take that. And you're blissfully ignorant to God's law. That as soon as you hear God's perfect law, it comes in contact with your heart and there's a war. God's law goes to war with our sinful hearts. Like a child who's told not to touch, not to put that in your mouth. You tell a kid not to touch, not to put that in your mouth. What's the next thing they're going to do? Like an adult who's told not to look, not to lust. See, the sinful hearts of mankind are awakened by the law as the law attacks the heart and wakes it up. And those desires come out and go, no, 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 don't tell him that's wrong. And they go to war because those desires are opposed to God. God's perfect law goes to war against sinful desires and awakens those desires. That's why it's impossible for a lost person to simply follow the law and be made righteous because God's perfect law wars against sinful desires. God's perfect law is going to go to war against you if your desires are apart from God. That's why it's hard even for believers to simply come to the law of God and will ourselves through our strength into obedience. Because the law awakens those sinful desires in me. 
Romans 7, verses 7 through 10, answers this question of, so what does that mean about the law? So should I just, like, not go to the law? If it's going to awaken simple desires in me, does that make the law itself bad? Should I just, like, not read the law? Brad, have you been causing us to sin by going through the Ten Commandments? What's wrong with our pastor? The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 7, verses 7 through 10. Can you put that up for everybody? Romans 7, verses 7 through 10. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, through the law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. This is what he's saying. He said, I was coveting because my simple heart covets. I just didn't know it was wrong. And then God said, don't covet. And I went, oh, that's what that is? That sounds fun. Let me go covet some more. And it awakened all kinds of other coveting in my life. Apart from the law, sin lies dead in my life. It was just, I was just blissfully ignorant. But then the law came, and it awakened death in me. All of us, all of us are looking for life. We're all particularly looking for abundant life. And that's exactly what our sinful desires promise us, is abundant life. But it's also exactly what God promises. Jesus said, I've come to give life and to give it more abundantly. And when those two come in contact with one another, something must die. This war ends when one dies. Either the sinful desires will lead us to an eternal death, or all of those sinful desires and sinful actions were placed on Jesus at the cross and he died in our place. But when the holiness of God and his law comes in contact with our sinful desires, there's a war. And in order to get to abundant life, someone's got to die. And so that leads us to this. Jesus is our only hope. And he is the only cure for our discontentment and coveting. Coveting must be replaced by contentment in Jesus. Coveting must be replaced by contentment in Jesus. Not by more laws against coveting. The more laws we get against coveting, our depraved hearts will just covet more. As we're told, we can't have stuff, we'll just want it more. Right? That happens, doesn't it? It's not simply by denying ourselves any of our desires that we should enjoy God's good gifts. And that's not wrong. No, what we need to do is we need to be content in Christ by seeing and savoring Jesus as greater than any gift he gives or any promise this world makes. All that the world is promising us pales in comparison to Jesus, who is greater. It's what we read earlier in the service. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You and I, we cannot find that contentment by ourselves, in ourselves. It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It only is found in Christ Jesus. And it's only found by the strength that Jesus Christ supplies. And so if you're a follower of Christ today, 
struggling with discontentment, struggling with the fairness or the unfairness of the world, struggling against your desires for more, struggling against your desires for different. Know that this weakness is not unique to you, and there's help. There's help, because in Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul calls on us as God's people in the midst of our discontentment, in the midst of all of that, to rejoice in the Lord because He's the one who gives good gifts. To pray through all the anxiety when we feel like we're not getting what we need. To learn contentment with, with what we have. How? Not by getting everything that we want or everything we think we deserve, but by learning to be content in Christ. By learning that Jesus is enough. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned. That's a learning process. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. So if you came here today, if you're watching online today, and you say, I don't have enough and I need more, and I want more, and it causes this desire in me. Contentment in Christ is the cure. And if, you're, if you have a lot, and you say, you know, yeah, but I just want the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. Contentment in Christ is the cure. He says, I don't do this in myself. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Believer, find your contentment in Jesus Christ. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, today you need to know that on the cross, Jesus took all of your sinful actions and all of your sinful desires upon himself. He took the payment for your sin and your sinfulness. He took the death that sin deserves, God's holy wrath and justice, God's holy law coming in contact with sinful desires, and there was death, and Christ took that death. Upon himself, so that all who place their trust, not in their own ability to keep the law, not in their relative goodness compared to how other people keep the law, but those who place their trust in Jesus himself as Lord and Savior, those who treasure Jesus as their greatest good, treasure Jesus as enough, would have real life. You will never have abundant real life until you find contentment in Christ. Trust him today. In him, you will find contentment and abundant life. In him, you will find what the psalmist calls fullness of joy. You will be able to say to